Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Rilston and we're recording on a Monday afternoon. And as the famous rock band Finn Lizzie once said, the boys are back in town as I'm joined by my colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Tyro Marshall today. They've both had a bit of time off. Samuel, how are you? I'm not bad, thank you. Very nice to see you again, Stephen. We obviously saw each other on Saturday. Unfortunately for you, you did have to spend some time with me outside of work hours. Um, and the same with you, Tyrone. So how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you, Stephen. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Enjoyable, an enjoyable social gathering on, on Saturday outside of work. Nice to see each other in person rather than rather than virtually for once. The sun was out, so we couldn't complain, really. Uh, and, and town was very busy because of that, obviously, in Manchester. Nice to see it bustling. Um, football and matters anyways, Samuel. We'll just get straight into it. David De Gea, uh, me and Rich discussed his future on Friday, but you wrote the line this morning that United do want a first-choice goalkeeper now uh, to replace David De Gea. So can you just expand a bit on that, please? Uh, obviously from this Monday morning, Monday afternoon now as we record this podcast. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly like to. I, I've, I'm have i still trying to nail down concrete names on that. There have been a lot of names that have been flying about with it um, in, in relation to United signing a new keeper. Uh, it was interesting seeing just on the cursory glance of having a look at the news while I was off that Bartford Bruggen was has been touted to join Brighton and really that's that's a pretty ringing endorsement when Brighton are going for a player given their hit rate uh, as far as signings are concerned. But I I've, I was told this morning that United definitely it's it's got to a point now where they want a goalkeeper who will be number one. I think everybody. As as I wrote last month, and it's it's been known for some time that United have been in the market for a keeper, but there was always some uncertainty as to what what status that keeper would be. Uh, where would they be coming in? Would it be a case of learning the ropes for a season? But with De Gea's contract situation now, and how pessimistic United are uh, about the prospect of him renewing, I mean, pessimistic. They may be pessimistic. I think a lot of United supporters are probably optimistic about him not renewing because it seems like speaking to the United supporters who who I know and who were at the cup final, um, a lot of them are at the end of their tether with with De Gea and they they just think that it's in the club's best interest, it's in his best interest to be released when his his contract expires next week. It's it's due for the shredder. So it would make infinite sense for United to be looking at a keeper who's going to be number one because that's that's not going to be Tom Heaton. He's thirty seven. It's not going to be Nathan Bishop because as, as we don't tire of saying, uh, Ty has played more times in goal at Old Trafford than, than Nathan Bishop has. And it's, I suppose, the issue for United, and it's why they've probably been trying to kick the can down the road, is that there's not there's not a standout successor to come in for De Gea, but that shouldn't stop them from putting someone new in at the start of next season. And given the internal candidates, all of them seem to be uh, non-starters, even though they've got 26 year old England international there that that's not the that's not the whole story with Dean Henderson I think everybody knows that there's there've been things that have gone on there and and what he said last year and the lack of dialogue he's had with Eric Ten Hag I think they've only had maybe one video call and it was only when I dwelt on it this morning that I thought that when Ahmad's future was brought up to Ten Hag at a press conference he had no problem uh, waxing lyrical about him and saying that he'll come back to the club next season uh, as you'd expect him to, given what a brilliant season he had at Sunderland. And yet when I asked him about Dean Henson's future, he, he just didn't want to talk about it. So that spoke volumes. And Forrest wants to sign Dean Henson permanently. If United can get Henderson and David De Gea's wages off the books, that's 
It's about £300,000 a week at the very minimum combined. They're both off the books if you get a fee in for Henderson as well. That goes a long way to to reinforcing the squad because Henderson's time, it's it's come and it's seemingly gone. And I think, it's as I said earlier, I think it's United really just need to be getting rid of De Gea. I, I'd have said that before the FA Cup final and... Uh, it was, you know, I listened to the podcast that you and, and Rich did while I was off, uh, just as a little, a little bit of a escapism. But you know, as as you said, every time it seemed it seems like every other week there's there's almost a De Gea special on these podcasts, and we're deliberating over why United are actually trying to to tie him down a new contract. And it seems like there's been uncertainty over his future. The last the last couple of years, two years ago after the Europa League final, they wanted to phase him out. Four years ago, he had a bad run in. He got a new contract in the summer. I I, I hope for United's sake that history doesn't repeat itself because great goalkeeper though he's been for United, he is a busted flush of a goalkeeper now, and he has he's stood still metaphorically and literally at times. It's really been a surprise, is it, Ty? When you look back the last few moments and. It's Groundhog Day, as Samuel's just said. We are talking about it again and again and again. And I guess the last few months of the season, when you really need to perform the business part of the campaign, they have really, really let them down. And there was a few big games where he made mistakes, obviously away at Sevilla, West Ham, and then against Manchester City in the FA Cup final. Um, he was exposed again, wasn't he? So this coming to a conclusion and happening like this, it, it's not really a surprise, is it? No, not not really. I mean, it's telling how how badly he's ended the season. That Ten Hag has basically seemingly decided now that he, he doesn't want him to stay and that he's happy for for them to part ways. When I think for eighty percent of the season, he's certainly given the impression. And I think it's probably believed that the best approach in a summer when the, the budget is not particularly big and they need a striker is to keep De Gea, sign a goalkeeper like for Brogan in maybe the fifteen million pound price range and basically kick the can down the road for, for 12 months but things have got so bad towards the end of the season that, that he's reached a point where he feels drastic action has to be taken and you know it, it is going to be pretty drastic because from, you know from what we believe on that transfer budget and the message that's coming across and what we saw in January I mean let's not forget what United did in January basically loans for Sabitz of Vegorst and Butland you know they didn't have any money in January and if they're going to sign a first-choice keeper, they're going to sign Mason Mount, then they're going to have to make compromises on a striker unless they get significant money in from sales. There's just, you know, I'm, I'm not sure there's enough there to get everything Senab wants to the standard that he wants in, in those three positions. So it does it does kind of hint at how much he has lost faith in, in De Gea, really. But, you know, it's, it, it probably is the way forward. I think we all accept that this summer isn't going to be the end of the rebuild. It might be further down the line, but I don't think it'd be any surprise if, if we're still looking at that squad in September when the transfer window closes and thinking they're one or two short in starters alone, never mind backup. Um, but it, it's clear to Haya, the Haya didn't fit. Um, you know, he was, Ten Hag had to compromise from Brentford onwards really in terms of playing out from the back, but you may be willing to compromise when when he, you've got a, a world-class goalkeeper and stopping the ball going in the net, but De Gea is probably not that anymore either. He still has brilliant games, but he's too error-prone all round really to to be worth the um, to be worth the trade-off. So I think we, you know, we probably have reached this point now where it has to be a new a new first choice, and that's you know that's probably why they're not going to compete with Brighton for Verbruggen because 
what's the point? You know, he's not he's not going to come in and start next season, is he? I, I think that's pretty unrealistic. So it's going to end up they're looking at a, a more senior keeper, someone like Ananas. You know, certainly looks to be an obvious an obvious link if if Inter have to sell, which it seems they probably do given their financial issues. Played 145 games at the Tanaga Ajax. Um, you know, he's he's a more likely signing now than than someone like Verbrugge. And if De Gea does indeed go in in a couple of weeks' time, but yeah, I think it. I think it does show how badly he ended the season. That for for eighty percent of the season or more, we've we've all thought it's it's inevitable it's going to happen. I think De Gea has thought it's inevitable it's going to happen. I think Ten Hag has thought it's inevitable it's going to happen. And now it seems it's not going to happen. And it it shows you what has changed really over the last maybe six weeks of the season. I think the minority that are still defending De Gea at the moment or, or arguing that he should remain at the club as number one, we'll probably see next season when a competent kind of ball-playing goalkeeper comes in, someone who is comfortable with the ball at their feet, they'll see what impact that's going to make. Because I think it's so important in, in, in 2023, football's changed and evolved, and you really need a goalkeeper like that, um, especially in the Premier League, the way a team's playing now and how Ten Hag wants to play. Um, Sammy, if you look back at the last few moments, then we're kind of seeing the business end of the season kind of really let himself down. Is there any games that really stick in your mind? I mean, I listed a few mistakes there. You think that was the nail in the coffin? Because for me, the Sevilla game, I, I tweeted after that game, I said it felt like it had the potential to be his last game or the game that triggered his last game for the club, his last season. Um, would you agree with that or does another game stick in your mind? That that game, his his limitations were exposed for all three goals, as I've probably said on about five different podcasts already. And at the first goal, it's it's his lack it's it's his it's his distribution. Second goal, not commanding at set pieces. Third goal, he he struggles if he has to come out of his area. On the rare occasion, he does come out of his area. And even later that week in the cup semi final, you've got a penalty shootout. And of course, I mean, it was just as well Sully March put his over the top because I don't think anybody really thought that David De Gea was going to save a penalty. And when he did save a penalty uh, against Fulham, it was against a guy who. I, I didn't realise until I got home and watched Match of the Day who had already missed three penalties this season. So even the, the one time he saved a penalty this season, it was against the one guy who seemingly can't score a, a penalty for Toffee, which is one of the few flaws of Alexander Mitrovic's season at Fulham because he's, he's otherwise is a very good Premier League striker. But, but even before that Sevilla game, I suppose there was a, a shift in the mood among the fan base and there were more... Who who were who who were up for getting rid of De Gea at the end of the season after that, but even before that, it it just seemed like they had to that to move on. They had a very very obvious straightforward decision to make, in that you just let him go at the end of the season. And okay, you might not get the absolute um, show stopping goalkeeper that you want in in the summer, given the the budget constraints and the other factors that that time mentioned earlier, but. United, they should be doing, and this sounds strange saying it, but in other ways it's not, but they should be doing what Brentford are doing or what Brighton are doing. I mean, Brentford, they know that David Rea wants to leave and they've started that succession plan before he's even left. They've signed a keeper, I think it's Mark Flecken, isn't it, from from Freiburg. He had the most clean sheets in the Bundesliga last season. He builds himself as a ball-playing goalkeeper. He's 30, so he's, he's not exactly a spring chicken. And um, if if he comes in and Raya ends up staying, they don't find a buyer for Raya. He's got a year to adjust to the Premier League environment, and he'll probably be better off for it when it comes to the next season when 
Raya definitely leaves and he's the number one. But he's only cost £11 million. And if he's their starting goalkeeper, who's actually, you know, he, he ticks the boxes of, um, the defensive boxes of, you know, decent number of clean sheets in a top five European league. Um, and, and he's renowned as a ball playing goalkeeper. Why, why can't United go and sign someone like that? It doesn't have to be the most spectacular keeper attainable on the planet. I mean, sometimes the, with some of the names who get linked... Sorry to interrupt, obviously Ortega's fantastic, isn't he? And you look in the FA Cup final and you think City's number two is better than United's number one. I, I think he's a good goalkeeper. He's a more competent keeper than De Gea, which is what I wrote in, in my piece on Cup Final Day, which again should should be another nail in, in De Gea's coffin. He he doesn't strike me as a particularly dependable keeper if... If if a ball is is going towards him, I don't think he's ever going to be one of the you know a, a keeper that people are saying oh he's a great shot stopper or he's he's going to save you plenty of times. But that that doesn't necessarily happen very often with a Manchester City goalkeeper anyway. Even though in Edison they have got one of the best keepers in the world, but when he had the ball with his feet, he knew what he was doing with it, and it really does set the tone for a team's um, a team's pattern of play. It sets the tone. It. it, it in the stands, even you've you've all probably seen the montage of of De Gea's lowlights from from that final, and people can you know, complain about oh, Rashford not being good enough in the air or other players not being good enough in the air, but City knew what they were doing. It was give him the ball, let him launch it, and we've got Ruben Diaz, uh, Nathan Ake, John Stones, uh, Rodri, even all of them. They will they will win those duels, and they'll they'll bet on them winning those duels and. That's exactly what happened, and it goes back. Six, you go back six years to when United won the Europa League final. Their main tactic was to, when Matthijs de Ligt had the ball for Ajax, it was to press him because they knew that he was very, very good on the ball. When Davinson Sanchez had the ball, it was ease off him because he's useless on the ball, and he'll just hoik it forward. And we've got Pogba, Fellaini, and Smalling, and we'll bank on them to get the ball clear. And they did that, and that's how they won that final as easily as they did, or one of the main reasons why they won that final as easily as they did. So, you know, football, as you said, it has evolved a hell of a lot. And you watch some of the games from the 90s or the early 2000s, the way the keepers would use the ball. And it does look a little bit alien now compared to how keepers, um, how how calm they are on the ball now. And with De Gea, you just do not have that. Um, I mean, people forget maybe Real Betis at home because United won 4-1, but He's kicking that half. The first half was probably the worst it's ever been. Um, the West Ham game where he made the mistake, he started both halves of that game passing the ball to a West Ham player. It's it's not a difficult decision what United have to make. And I just wonder, given the, the phraseology that was used last week by, by United about how they're not as optimistic now as... Or sorry, I think it was something like discussions aren't as positive now as two weeks ago. I just half wonder whether that quote Ten Hag gave in an interview he did on the eve of the FA Cup final when he, he said he, De Gea couldn't be certain of being his number one next season, whether that has also marked a shift in, in De Gea's head, whether he's thought, well, if I'm not going to be valued and that they are essentially devaluing me by trying to get me on lower wages, maybe it's just time I just you know, divorce myself and I, I take the 12 years and yeah, I've I've had a great time at United, but that's that's the cue to 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 exit now. Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks volumes as well that really the only interest at the moment, it seems, anyways, is from Saudi Arabia and Davide here. Um, it's not 
a big reflection really on, on the ability and where he is in his career. Um, we'll leave it there for part one anyways. Be back in a moment for part two. Tyrone, the buzzword at the moment is succession. Uh, I was t- speaking to Samuel actually about the TV show. Everyone's watching it. I watched the pilot the other night. So still yet to go on episode two, but I'm right at the very start. Yeah, season one. So I've, I've got it all to come. So hopefully it's as good as everyone says. Yeah, pilot. Oh, mate, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So who's going to succeed? Uh, I know we've mentioned a few names there in the first part. I mean, you look at the goalkeepers in the Premier League could be available. Sanchez from Brighton, but ironically, he's being deemed service to requirements because he's not good enough with his ball. That's what the deliveries um, came to the conclusion. Anyways, obviously, Anana, is it to take in consideration how his time ended at Ajax, isn't it, with, with Ten Hag? I mean, didn't end in great fashion. He's now in the Milan and he was fantastic in the Champions League final, to be fair. And Diego Costa has another name. Tyrone's been linked as well from Porto. So, any of them names really jumping out to you? And, uh, I mean, I'll come on to a moment. Samuel mentioned Dean Henderson. Um, bit of a spoiler, I know we did a, a panel for the moment saying our ideal goalkeeper signs, but I'd still be in the Henderson camp at this point. I think it's the most pragmatic option, actually. Yeah, I mean, it probably is. I guess the one thing is that he's 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 a sellable asset this summer and you could probably buy like 25 million, maybe, 20 to 25 for Henderson. He's an English goalkeeper, still young for a goalkeeper. And that might set offset half the cost of signing a keeper, Tenag wants and... We know what Tenard wants with the ball at his feet. We don't really know if Henderson can do that, to be honest. We've never seen him. We've never seen him do it. It's an unknown if he's got that in his locker or not. Um, so I think there's a degree of, of risk there. I mean, you mentioned Sanchez. I think you've got to be very sceptical about, skeptical about signing a goalkeeper who's behind Jason Steele in the pecking order. Um, I think that would be, that'd be madness. Um, David Raya, possibly. Um, I mean, I wrote a piece of long-term. Raya's... I think I wrote that piece for the, the goalkeepers there. Actually, Raya's world-class with his feet, but is he a world-class goalkeeper? Probably not. Um, I mean, I've said it before, but Jürgen Klopp called him a number 10, wearing the number one, I think, last season. And, you know, that's great. His distribution's brilliant. But if he's going to cost you goals, then is it is it a trade-off worth having? You know, that arguably not. Um, Anana may be the same. I mean, he's, he's probably as good as it gets with his, his feet. You know, I was covering the Champions League final last weekend and his, you know, he was brilliant in the last few minutes he was playing, you know, there was two Inter Milan defenders deeper than he was the last few minutes orchestrating play and, and trying to pin balls into the box to, to cause City problems. And obviously there are those links with Ten Hag. It didn't end brilliantly. I think that was probably more an issue with the club than with the manager. Um, you know, so he looks the obvious one. I can't say I've seen much of Diego Costa. Um, so not, not really sure. I mean, he sounds like he can play, but purely going off the name Diego Costa there um so yeah I don't know there's no um you know there's not there's not a range of of options really here and after that you look at it you, you're thinking outside the box there's there's plenty of German goalkeepers who play out from the back they virtually all do really um but you know you, you're taking a you're taking a risk with any of them the, the Dortmund keeper seems to be linked with a few Premier League teams but from what I've seen he made some catastrophic mistakes last season he he didn't look a great goalkeeper to me, um, so I find you know I find that one a bit strange. So yeah, there's it's hard to say, but if De Gea goes, I think they need to sign a keeper. I think it's it's going to cost them. I think you know there's there's, there's uncertainty around Henderson, and then there's obviously the issue that he you know, he basically torched his relations with the club last summer with with what he said in in that interview, 
Um, and you know, maybe there is a way back from that. I'm sure these things will be forgotten. He was speaking with his heart on his sleeve. He always, he always does that. He clearly felt um, like he'd been in badly treated, and you can, you can understand that. I, you know, I think part of it was misfortune rather than than bad treatment. If he hadn't have got COVID, he would have started that season as number one, and maybe things are different now. But he did get COVID, and and De Gea was great. So, you know, things circumstances change, and and that's what happened. Circumstances changed, and and he missed out due to ill fortune really and um, you can understand why you'd be disappointed about it but yeah I think there's I think there's probably uncertainty around going with with Henderson so you're probably looking at signing a keeper but that as I said before I think that has a knock-on effect on the entire transfer window really if you've suddenly got to pluck out 50 million plus maybe for a goalkeeper that's I think that affects the the balance of of your whole window even if you can recoup say 25 million for for someone like Henderson I did my lunch piece actually on that interview the other day I am on Dean Henderson's talk sport, call it a punchy interview, should we say, last year. And we've talked at length about it, to be fair, in this pod a few times. And then I went back and I looked at my a feature with Dean Henderson's former coach, Carlisle. And I was reading the quotes back, and it's just really interesting. Dean Henderson was a fan of Manchester United growing up, big fan, obviously, with Carlisle as well. He always said that if he wanted to play football and he was going to be a goalkeeper, he wanted to play for Manchester United. He insisted that regularly, obviously, joined the academy as a teenager. And when you kind of consider that context he's come through he's worked hard he's gotten to touching distance really of realizing that ambition he gets told by Solskjaer look yep you're gonna be my number one and then it falls through when you put that all together on a human level it's understandable that he was going to be a bit irked and he was going to feel aggrieved um so I guess Samuel final word on Henderson do you really think he has burned his bridges with that interview would you be within that camp and is that kind of the stance you take or do you think it could be addressed privately sat down with you could sit down with Nog and kind of brush it under the carpet and, and move on, I guess. I think if that was the case, that would have happened by now. And I don't think the interview is, is maybe as significant as, as the lack of dialogue that he's had with Ten Hag. I think it was just a, a video call, really, that they had in January when Ten Hag, I mean, rather naively, I thought, when I was told about it, asked Henson if he fancied coming back to United because Dubravka had gone on loan uh, to Newcastle. I mean, I... I don't think anybody would have thought that Henderson would have been rotating with De Gea like Solskjaer was doing. And if Ten Hag was planning on doing that, that was the wrong plan to to take anyway. If if he if he wanted Henderson to come back in and be number one, which would have been a you know quite, I don't think anybody would have really seen that coming at all. And I suspect that wasn't what Ten Hag had planned. But if that was the plan, then Henderson probably would have come back. I I just don't think Henderson wanted to come back because it would have meant being a number two and and Ten Hag's rationale was that it wasn't necessarily good for him that he was conceding so many goals with Forrest but he, he also had some really good moments with with Forrest I mean he he's, there was a penalty save against Spurs there was the performance against Liverpool he was involved in some some key wins until his his, his season was was cut short by injury and Forrest want to keep him they want to sign him um, and as I said earlier when I thought it was telling that, that Ten Hag just couldn't be bothered to even discuss Henson's future towards the end of the season. If you've got, say, Henson had a really good season on loan at, at Nottingham Forest and he was fit, you'd imagine that he he, he would have that that he would have possibly been in the frame to to come back and and take De Gea's place. But yeah, when when manager and player have had so so little dialogue over a long period of time, and Henson himself said he didn't want to train in front of Ten Hag, otherwise he'd have seen what he could do and then he he, he would want to keep him. 
Um, and, and United weren't going to let him play in the semi-finals in, of the League Cup in January had he been fit for that as well. I just think there's 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 too much um, too much has gone on there now, and clearly, from what I gathered, the way they're operating, it's about signing a new number one goalkeeper. It's not about promoting an internal candidate. It's looking for an external candidate. If we move on then, Ty, because we've just done Groundhog Day there, haven't we? For twenty minutes, I think we've pretty covered the hair section uh, quite extensively. If we look to the, the opening day of the season, I thought it was worth asking you what do you think the team's going to look like. Because I look back, uh, obviously, against Brighton, it was the 2-1 the defeat. And some of the names were quite interesting. I think when you look back with the benefit of hindsight, the team was always bound to struggle. Yeah, Donny van der Beek, uh, sorry, not Donny van der Beek, Christian Eriksen, I don't know why his name has come up in my head. Um, playing as a, a false nine, uh, it was Fred McTominay and Fernandes in midfield. Harry Maguire was starting in defence. So, obviously, we're expecting a replacement for De Gea to come in. Um, Mason Mount feels like a realistic target, doesn't he? What other changes do you think could be made for that game? Because obviously it's against Wolves the the second week of August. The new season will kick off. Yeah, I, I mean, difficult to know really, isn't it? I guess. It is at this point, which is probably why you've asked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you think back to those first two games of last season and Casemiro started one at fourth nine and one in defensive midfield. Sorry, not Casemiro, Christian Eriksen. You've done the same as me. I've done the, the Van der Beek. I don't know why I came my mind. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's highly plausible that there's maybe only one new signing or two with a keeper maybe in that team. And, um, you know, it's 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 probably still not impossible that De Gea does does stay. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out the prospect that United are, are assessing the keeper market now with a view of making a decision by the back end. Of, well, the contract expires a week on Friday, I think, doesn't it? And and making a decision next week on whether a replacement is attainable. If they're being told into one a hundred million for Inanna, if others are looking unattainable, you know, maybe they maybe they do come to that agreement. I, I don't think that's an impossible scenario. Um, you know, you you think before before that is final and before they definitely say, right, we're we're done here, they'd want to know what the what the possibility of a replacement is, rather than getting to the end of July and and still not having a goalkeeper. I think that would be a lot of uncertainty, but yeah, you'd, you know, you're probably looking at, at two maybe, and you know, we we've been saying for six months that a striker is the absolute priority here. I would not be surprised in the slightest if Anthony Martial or Marcus Rashford are playing up front against Wolves. I, I think it's it's difficult to see a striker signing before we get into probably mid-August as as it is really. Um, Partly because a decent chunk of the budget is going to have to go on Mount and a, and a goalkeeper probably. Then you're dependent on sales, topping it up. Everyone knows United want to sell. They can't, you know, they can't do what what Chelsea are dubiously doing and and have this relationship relationship with uh, with your owners, Stephen, and flog all your unwanted players to to the PIF in in Saudi Arabia. I think that's um, you know that that's worked out pretty well for Chelsea. That, but it's it's very dubious as well um you know it's helping them balance the books uh, massively um united don't have that al nasser don't seem to want eric bailly alitiab don't seem to want alex tellers they have to find other buyers for for players like that so you you know you're, you're potentially looking at august for a striker and the, the question is who do you get on a striker and i i think you know that the, the, the clearly cold on the idea of going for Kane and it dragging out into an, an entire summer ordeal, but I don't see an alternative that's not going to be an entire summer ordeal, to be honest. Um, there's, you know, Rashford Hodgland is someone Tenard clearly wants, but Atalanta has said they want 100 million euros for him. I mean, that's absolute madness. 
guy scored nine goals in 33 games and has played for three clubs in 18 months. That's just, you know, that's that's insane money um, for a player who I don't think would be first choice necessarily next season. So, And a lot of the other four was mentioned, Colo Moani, um, Ramos, come come with a risk and, and big price as well. So I think striker is is probably going to be the more, the more difficult one. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start the season and United haven't signed a striker, to be honest. Do you think Oshimin's become a bit more... Uh, realistic now, Ty, because that's what I'm starting to think with the madness that's going on in Napoli. Obviously, Split is departed, they've just won the league, but there's a bit of uncertainty around there. I thought you said Arshavin, Stephen. <laughs> did, did that come out as Arshavin there? I don't know how that came out as Arshavin. He definitely scored a couple at Anfield, so yeah, it would be seven four, wouldn't it, next season? Not, not he seven four at Anfield in one game, yeah. <laughs> how old is Arshavin now? Late 30s? Yeah, yeah, I think he's probably passed his best. Yeah, I mean, the, it it seems to have gone quiet for everyone with with Osman because Bayern were pretty keen. It seems to have gone quiet, and I know De Laurentiis has said that there's absolutely no chance Osman will leave. And I think he's, you know, he's as tort. He's probably the Italian Daniel Levy, isn't he? I think he's as torturous to deal with as Levy, if not worse. And I think either though, you're probably looking at a prolonged summer pursuit. But it does, it does seem to have gone quiet with Osman because De Laurentiis is is so stubbornly saying this this is not happening and. Obviously, there has been uncertainty there. Um, I mean, their manager appointments, have they gone for Rudy Garcia? I think it's massively underwhelming um, for a club who've just won just won the league. So, you know, you, 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 if you're Osman, you'd think you want to go, but I know it, just, the, it just seems very quiet around him. And, um, you know, it is, you, you look at it now, and I think we all thought it was going to come down to Kane or Osman, but you look at it now, and it's very difficult to say who United would sign as a striker, I think. I don't I don't think there's necessarily a leading candidate, which is why the idea of giving up on Kane doesn't really make any sense. You may as well test Tottenham's resolve. You may as well put at least put Tottenham in that position to to make an issue of it and to, to basically deny Kane what he wants, which is the chance to leave. If if there was an if there was an alternative, if you could sign Osserman by the by the end of June and then sure walk away from Kane, but I don't think anyone really expects that to happen, so you may as well just keep prodding at Tottenham and prodding at Kane and and, and hoping something develops there and that maybe even Postacoglu thinks I'll pocket 80 million, 100 million quid to to rebuild the team around someone else who's who's not going to leave on a free anyway next year. So, you know, you may as well keep keep having a look. But I think the, the striker is the one at the moment where you look at it and think, I, I don't know where they're, where they're going to turn really in, in, in that position. I think Daniel Levy views himself as a knock-off Bond villain or that kind of character but if he was in James Bond I definitely wouldn't go see it would be a crap film um, shall we move on to the next part anyways that was it for part two part of part three so I mean I think we just talked about realistic targets there I think that's the key word um, obviously England are training at Carrington this week and quote-unquote agent Luke Shaw was tapping up uh, Declan Rice and Harry Kane is potential targets or players who could come across and move to Old Trafford. And they would obviously be fantastic additions, but it doesn't really feel realistic at this stage, does it? Especially not with Declan Rice, I suppose. No. Well, all the sound, all the noises coming out from United regarding Kane, as as we've just touched upon, of that they they don't see him going this summer, so they have to look at alternative options, which is is, is why partly why Ten Hag has has had those video calls with Rasmus Hoyland. Declan Rice, it seems like, yeah, that that's eventually he'll probably go to Arsenal. It's just a case of Arsenal pulling their finger out and and maybe not being as cheeky in negotiations with with West Ham and and stumping more more cash up front. But that will probably 
get done. Declan Rice, I'd argue, is a player that United should be in for because he is attainable. Uh, he, he would be expensive. I think at a bigger club, he he's got the scope to to become a more complete midfielder. I think a little bit like Yaya Toure when when Toure was at Barcelona, he was just a a stopper, a defensive minded player. Sometimes he'd play at centre back. Of course, Rice started out as a centre back at West Ham, but I, Toure obviously at City became a one of the best box box players. Uh, midfielders in the world and, and and Rice has got that in his locker but it looks like he's going to go to Arsenal so I mean there'll be some fans that will have looked at that post from Luke Shaw and taken it completely seriously and, and think he's doing the bidding as if he's he's the chief negotiator when um, the, the Shaw himself has, has rather downplayed it so yeah it's it's one of those things that I couldn't care less about it. You couldn't care less about it. Ty couldn't care less about it. But some fans will get their knickers in a twist over it. So I think I'll leave it there on that one. <laughs> nicely put, Tommy. Nicely put. I mean, Tenog does love characters, doesn't he? And I think Rice, I mean, we're talking about his ability, but he's a fantastic personality. I'm always impressed when he talks. He's 24 years old and his leadership's fantastic. He's led West Ham to that European title. It's his mate that United won and he's, he's not unfortunately for Manchester United fans who are addicted to Instagram stories he is not in the England squad at the moment he's he's out injured Mason Mount and unfortunately even with that you can see that dragging on and on and on just going off the Chelsea connection six years ago United agreed personal terms with Nemanja Matic in May that deal didn't get done until I think it was August the 1st even that it was complete that it was completed so that's how long these things can can, can drag on for, um, even though the framework might be in place quite early on. There are so many nuances at play as to whether a club can get in a replacement before they let the player go. Uh, what's the upfront fee going to be? What are the add-ons, etc., etc.? And as well as that, you've got the ownership situation at United, which although some are trying to suggest it, it, it's not having that much of an impact on what's going on. The, the uncertainty is, is definitely there. When when even the manager told us in, I think it was last month, Ten Hag told us that he, he wasn't completely certain of, of the budget that he that the United had this summer because of because of the possible takeover situation. So, um, yeah, there, there, there's as I said, there are a lot of a lot of nuances at play with these with these matters. I would say can we just skip to the opening day of the season uh, and avoid all these tedious things going on and on every day. However, yeah, that would I've got be a nice, nice. holiday coming up and I wouldn't want to skip that. I wouldn't want to skip that on, uh, on Saturday afternoon off the Portugal. Tyrone, we'll finish this to a bit of fun. I'll flip it to both of you as we'll end the podcast with a few quick fire questions and we'll reflect on the season. I've only got four uh, noted down, so I don't expect too much, but I'll start with you, Ty. Uh, what was the best ground to visit? this season and in why probably the Zimbru Stadium in Chisinau in, in Moldova <laughs> <laughs> phenomenal phenomenal architecture if anyone wants to go yeah in history facilities <laughs> faultless facilities um really lovely setting picturesque um Soviet era flats just overlooking the ground really really top draw get it on your list um now beyond that I mean it's 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 always hard to overlook the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I guess that's the gold standard now in the Premier League. Wembley's always good, if a little sort of underwhelming from a press point of view, I guess. Um, for, not in a forest, the city ground was quite good, just because it feels it, it, it's a proper Premier League ground. You've got to give a mention to Goodison Park, Tyrone. I was saying to both of you the other day. Well, I know we're having this conversation on Saturday. Up to when I'm on the blog. Yeah, I always get the impression people really enjoy your visits. To yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't say enjoy it. The, the press facilities there are 
um, a shambles. To be fair, once you're once you're in those seats, it's awful. But it is, you know, it's an evocative old school stadium, isn't it? So I think that's the advantage it's got. And as a fan, I think it's a great, you know, it's a great away day as a fan. But um, you know, it's not from a press point of view. I wouldn't say it was comfortable. You know, you'd hate to be covering Everton, Everton full time. You, you know, you'd you'd need a knee replacement after a few a few years doing that job full time. I think. In the multiple game time, that was when you were in the was it the sports hall the press conference? It was. I think it was the hair. Was, yeah, was it in it that was press conference? The hair, actually, yeah, yeah. Good memory. Good memory. Ten Hagen, obviously Ten Hagen, and De Gea. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. Uh, it was quite um, quite an experience that trip. It would be. Uh, it would be fair to say. But yeah, it was. Um, the facilities were were not great. It was a very small, uh, very small stadium. I remember towards the end of the game, I mean, it's Ronaldo scores, I think it was 2-0, it's a pretty nondescript game really, and Anthony had just signed, and there was some uh, corporate facilities, I guess you'd say, behind the um, press area, and you just heard uh, Anthony do what we've come to expect now, kind of run down the wing, box himself in, turn back onto his left foot and play a sample pass, and you just heard this uh, this mank accent scream out from these corporate facilities, say, do summer, Anthony, you're an £80 million winger, and... Uh, I think it, it showed the ingenuity of United fans to, to get everywhere, even in Moldova, and also something that we would probably hear quite a lot when it's uh, when it comes to comes to Anthony last season. Yeah, well, he said what most think probably uh, week in week out. Really, apparently, sometimes he can't. He has a tendency to be a little bit frustrating. Uh, Samuel, come on, your turn. Most entertaining game in the season, and why? Entertaining game. Oh, entertaining. Um... When do you leave the stadium? Do you thought, you know what? That was fantastic. I was I was felt privileged to be at that game. Uh, and I do appreciate I'm putting you both on the spot. Probably should have given you a heads up before we came on the podcast. The the the, Bas- the Barcelona home game, there was a sense of occasion around it because it's two of the biggest clubs on on the planet, and also United came from from behind to win. They won in a very uplifting way that evening. They were about to go on to Wembley. Uh, I mean, that was I think for the occasion for the atmosphere that that was probably. That that was one then, but it, it certainly maybe wasn't the most entertaining game. But this this is the problem, I suppose. The, the most the high scoring games with United involved them getting uh, thrashed most of the time. So that meant there was a lot of um, there was a lot of work for us afterwards and, and post mortems and whatnot. Um, I mean, I mean, strangely, uh, there was you know in terms of journalistically getting your teeth stuck into it, coming away from that Brentford game in August was, I, I think, after that we thought anything was possible. With United, the, the the performance that day, and where they were at, and how we had gone on the previous season, we were talking about the possibility of United finishing in the bottom half of the table, and it it didn't seem to the, the prospect of that didn't seem particularly um, unrealistic. Uh, but it certainly wasn't the most entertaining game. Um, so I'd, I'd probably stick with the with the Barcelona home game. But it was it was one of those seasons with United where there weren't there weren't that many vintage performances or. Or, or wins in terms of you know carp dm football or anything like that because they they did find goals hard to come by if I take you back on the road tyrone what was the best away atmosphere you, you experienced this season Ooh. fortunately for tyrone he wasn't at st james's park was he samuel you and rich were like yeah and it's hard to experience the away <laughs> atmosphere there seeing as uh, since you put the away fans so um so far away to try and try to play, play with advantage all of the worst that and wolves press box is a good view i'd say it's bang on the bang on the half wheeling isn't it press box is a good view but for a... do, do you mean do you mean away atmosphere is in the away following at the ground or the, yeah, sorry, the atmosphere I, I, at i'll rephrase the question the home support so the way support as as man united would view it 
So let's say Everton fans were fantastic at Goodison Park, for example. Uh, that's the that's the angle I was going for, Ty. Uh, right, okay, so home fans. Home fans at a United away game. Sevilla for me, apart from the games I went to, they that was that was some atmosphere. That it's, it's one of those stadiums that isn't it, it. People don't immediately think of it as being this cauldron on the continent, but I've been there twice now, and it both times it has been extremely loud. They all were in the white very, tops, very weren't they? Quite raucous to be fair. I mean, you could hear it for the TV, so I can only imagine what it was like to be there. It looked amazing on the telly that one, didn't it? I mean, there's they've got to have something in the water there to be that up for a Europa League tie. <laughs> I mean, to be to, to really want to be in the Europa League every season and win it, there's something wrong there. But they they keep on doing it. I guess I can't think of one domestically, but at the risk of giving them a second mention, certainly at the start, you know, the the Forest games both started pretty lively, and um, you know, Mon of Kintyre when they walk out is a, a great. Um, a great club song and the atmosphere there always starts off pretty lively. But United beat them twice very easily as well. So I was surprised at how that fizzled out. I mean, United were superior, I think it was, was it in December in the, the Carabao Cup, but both of those games were pretty easy, I think. So Yeah, won quite easily in both, yeah. Um, I'll open this up to both of you there. Probably makes sense. Most memorable press conference. This was probably an easier one to ask when Jose Mourinho was manager. And Samuel, I think you used to do colour pieces, didn't you, after Jose Mourinho's press conference, such as... Uh, the antics he would get up to. Um, but does any press conference from this season really stick out in either of your minds? Anything that Tenog said? Did he get animated at one point? Because nothing really comes to my head. Well, I, well, I know that one does, actually. No, though, I mean, the most bizarre one was the one in London before the FA Cup semi-final for pure, pure ridiculousness. Less on what was said, more memorable for, for the bizarreness of it. But no, I, in terms of what was said, there's nothing off the top of my head. Some of Samuel's memory for this recall for this is better. It possibly peaked in August, and these were back-to-back weeks, weirdly. The first one been, uh, was when he told Simon Peach to do his research um, regarding Cristiano Ronaldo. And the next week was when he just completely ignored Gary Cottrell, uh, the Sky Sports News reporter, because uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't approve of his... Um, of, of, of the way he went about his job and then it transpired that Cottrell had reveled in United getting battered by by Brentford and this was a side this was a, a, a twist to the plot so um yeah as 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 you really said Stephen he, he's he, Ten Hag has been pretty decent this season it was becoming a bit more work towards the end of the season given how many times we we saw him um but I suppose though the best sit downs we'd have had with him were in um, weren't press conferences. They were in in Melbourne at Ami Park and and at the team hotel in in, in Cadiz where there were no cameras and you just talking to him and he was a lot more he was a lot more candid with the, the, the dedicated correspondence. What one that briefly flicked back in? Sorry, I was going to say Sky Sports' Carl tweeted Karma didn't he? I think that was the tweet the exact. I know he says correct. The Carl, that was yeah, so silly. Yeah, come on, brilliant professional. Yeah, sorry, Ty. Very puerile, yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 very minor dose of do your research that that I got when uh, I think it's pretty fun when I asked about Casemiro and how they struggled without Casemiro and and I didn't quite get the do your research uh, brutality treatment, but it was very clear. It was made very clear, shall we say, by uh, response and um, and body language that that Ten Hag definitely didn't agree that United uh, United struggled without without Casemiro. It was. One of those where, I mean, he, he does always fix a gaze when he's answering you, but sometimes the gaze is a little bit more fierce and steely and, and you very much get the impression that he's maybe not not quite agreeing with the uh, with the premise there. And that was uh, that was one of those moments for sure. Last one then, uh, Chaps. I think you could both probably provide an answer to this. 
what was the weirdest place that you, you filed a piece this season? Any motorways, any service stations, airport floors, cafes, bizarre cafes, anywhere that really comes to your mind? He's smiling, but I don't, I don't know what he's going to come up with. I um I was I was at Lords uh, on a day off watching the, te- the test against South Africa, and I had to I was told about. I mean, part of me hates me for even filing it, but I was told that Marseille wanted Eric Bailly. So I, I, I filed that. Um, so, so yeah, so, sometimes when, yeah, even when you're on a day off and you're trying to switch off, have the escapism of the cricket, you, you can't, you can't um, completely switch off. So there, there are not, there are, I mean, there are a lot worse places to be filing, a, filing some news than, than Lords. But yeah, I was, I was quite sunburnt as well at that point. And, um, it was a very hot day, uh, but that was that was just off my phone. Unfortunately, I didn't I didn't have my laps up there and get Q out and do the curating and put a, have to go into Getty to download it. It was it was merely just filing it off the phone. I think that's a strong hint, Tyrone, because Samuel saying to me, Stephen, wrap up the podcast. The ashes is on. I want to go carry on doing my work and put the ashes on the background. I think that was a strong hint <laughs> with that answer. Was it, Samuel? I mean, in, in the in the bus. In the basketball area, you'd be rushing through a, a Bayou ball lying on uh, on Bayou going to Marseille. I think you can't can't take your eyes off uh, off Test cricket at the moment, especially not for for Eric Bayou. Presume you presume you both saw uh, the, the Ben Stokes documentary, and I was in. I'm not a cricket fan, but that's a that's a brilliant brilliant piece of uh, piece of documentary. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, yes, yeah, very, yeah, very it's, good. It's very very good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, we'll leave it then. Anyways, guys, uh, thank you very much for your time, Samuel. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much. And thank you, Tyrone. And I must say, I'm quite impressed. We've reached 45 minutes, which after Friday uh, and the weekend of not, not many updates, I'm very, very happy with that. So we'll leave it there. Thanks to listeners as usual. Take care and have a good week.